Well, good morning, everyone. Please turn with me in your Bibles back to Psalm 18. You'll find the start of the psalm on page 454. We're going to pick it up from verse 25, which is over the page on 455. But either way, please do turn back to Psalm 18. We'll read the rest of the psalm, but let me pray for us before we go any further. Father, your word is good and it is true. And we pray this morning that as we study it, as we feed on it, that you would show us Christ. We ask this morning that you would teach us, that you would rebuke us, and you would train us to live a righteous life in the likeness of our righteous King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 18 then, let me continue to read that for us. Verse 25. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. And by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise, for they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them as fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who delivered me from my enemies. 
Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Well, all of us sat here this morning, I'm sure, will be able to think of a time when we saw video footage of a rescue taking place and it made us stop dead in our tracks as we paid close attention to what was happening. Perhaps your mind goes to the footage of the rescue operation after the attack on the World Trade Center 12 years ago to pull survivors out of the, not 12 years ago, 22 years ago, there we go, to pull survivors out of the rubble. Or perhaps your mind goes to the footage of the rescue operation to extract the boys' football team from the cave in Thailand that they found themselves in back in 2018. And if we were to go back even further in history, we might be able to imagine 111 years ago, everything being put on hold as households gather together around the wireless desperately listening in to find out more information about the RMS Carpathia as she sped to the place where the Titanic had sunk in order to rescue as many survivors as she could. All of these are history-defining rescue operations on such a dramatic scale that they made the whole world stop what it was doing in order to understand exactly what was going on and to see exactly what the outcome would be. And our psalm this morning, Psalm 18, is, if you like, among many other things, a report of another history-defining rescue mission on a much bigger scale than anything else the world has ever seen or ever will see. It's a psalm that King David, the king of God's people, shares with his people, shares with the reader right at the end of his life. Second Samuel chapter 22, King David reflects back on the multitude of ways that the Lord has faithfully, tirelessly rescued him. And King David could have just given us a list of the facts, just a few verses to tell us everything that God did. And yet in Psalm 18, he has deliberately chosen to paint a much bigger, much more stimulating canopy of everything that the Lord has done. King David wants to engage all of our senses. He wants to astonish us as we read Psalm 18. He wants the reader to feel the emotions that he writes into the psalm. He wants to take us as the reader on even something of the journey that he went through when he was the king. And so the length, the scale, the drama of this psalm is absolutely no accident. The vastness of the psalm is trying to communicate something of the vastness of God's rescue and God's salvation. And it's also a love song. You'll see that right at the start and right at the end of the psalm. Verse 1, King David writes, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And then right at the end, verse 50, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed. It's a song written by God's rescued king who loves the Lord and who is loved by the Lord. We'll see why as we study it together. It's also impossible to read this psalm and not to see the way that it perfectly describes 
Jesus' life. And so we shouldn't be surprised if at times Psalm 18 sounds more like King David and at times it sounds more like King Jesus. It's a psalm that David sings at the end of his earthly reign, but it's a psalm that Jesus could sing at the beginning of his eternal reign after he was raised from the dead to eternal life. And as I was doing my research earlier on this week, I was looking for an example of a rescue operation where the leader of the nation leads the rescue operation himself or herself. Perhaps you can think of one. I couldn't find one. I didn't look for super long, but I did look, and I couldn't find one. More often than not, the leaders are criticized for a slow, insufficient response. But this is a sound where God intervenes decisively, personally. He bends the laws and fabric of the universe to save his king, to rescue his king both David, and then 1,000 years later, his own son, Jesus. And so as we try and cover as much of the psalm as we can over the next 25 minutes or so, let's notice three things which hopefully, yep, have appeared on the screen next to me. As you look at Psalm 18, you see that right at the heart of the psalm, we read of the righteousness of God's king. And then either side of those verses, we see the rescue of the king, and then at the beginning and the end, we see the response of the king. I've tried to make it as obvious as I can as we look at the, the structure of the psalm together. Let's start by taking a look at the detail that God gives us of the rescue of God's king. The rescue of God's king. There are two complementary but two crucial sides to God's rescue that King David wants us to see and wants us to understand. So in verses 4 to 19, David wants us to see the powerful strength of the Lord in his salvation. And then in verses 31 to 45, David wants us to see the personal support of the Lord in his salvation. See, so many times throughout his reign as king, David stared at the end of his life, at the hands of his enemies, where he needed God to intervene both powerfully and personally. You see in verse 4, for example, the king faced the cords of death, the cords of Sheol, Verse 5, the snares of death as they confront him. And as these cords and snares snake their way around him, in his distress, in his helplessness, verse 6, he calls upon the Lord. To his God he cries for help. See, King David knows that as his own death ensnares him, he cannot save himself. But he knows that his God can Verse 6 again, from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. And as his king's cry reaches his ears, it's not just King David's enemies who tremble, but the entirety of creation. Verse 7, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. To rescue his king, God enters into creation himself in his wrath against his enemies, 
sending the created order spinning into chaos in order to save the king that he loves. Again, verse 13, the Lord thundered in the heavens. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. This is God's response to the threats against his king. He doesn't take them lightly. His anger burns brightly against the king's enemies, and he is much louder much more frightening, and it's not a fair fight. So much so that in the aftermath, King David tells us, verse 17, that he rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me, but not for the Lord. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, and rescued me because he delighted in me. Now that is just a glimpse of the power and the strength of the Lord against his foes who threaten his king. It's a reminder to us all that we must never domesticate God in our heads, never shrink him to be a God that could perhaps potentially be outmatched. He is patient towards his enemies in his mercy, but he will never be outmuscled he will never allow his king to be persecuted forever without any sort of recourse. He will act decisively in history to silence, to defeat his enemies once and for all. And we see a part of that at the cross and the empty tomb, don't we? We see a part of that fulfilled in David's life. We see a much bigger picture of it fulfilled at the cross of Jesus. Sin and death are disarmed. Christ the King returns from the grave and then one day he will return to begin to finish what he has started. All of the enemies of God's people silenced, defeated forever. But as I mentioned in Psalm 18 we also hear the wonderful way that the Lord not only displays his mighty power but also gently sustains, nourishes and keeps his king throughout his life, throughout his earthly reign. There are wonderful moments of intimacy in this psalm between the Lord and his king where you see his provision as a God who is both strong and kind. So verse 32, the Lord equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of the deer, set me secure on the heights. Verse 35, you have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me. My feet did not slip. See, it's true that we mustn't ever domesticate God, but nor should we ever forget his abundant generosity, gentleness, tender care for his king. And again, we can think of both David's life and the way that God did this for him, and also Jesus on the way to the cross praying, asking God for the strength that he needs to face the enemies that he faced. As a human being, a strength that God knew that he needed and was delighted to provide in abundance. And it's important that we hold these two things together. It's important that we see that as God rescues, the reality of the created order shudders in fear, but he also stoops into the life of his king to flood him with everything that he needs on this earth to endure the assault of his enemies 
until he intervenes one day to put an end to their schemes once and for all. See, the outcome of the rescue of God's king means salvation for his king, salvation for his people, and it means judgment for his enemies. We see that in verse 41. King David says, They cried for help, but there was none to save. They even try crying to the Lord, despite persecuting, despite opposing, and despite pursuing his king to death. They cry out to him, but because of all they have done, the Lord does not answer them. And so then the king is installed, verse 43, not just as the king of God's people, but the head of the nations, where people whom David had not known serve him, cringing and trembling out of their fortresses. See, the salvation of the king means judgment for those who have opposed him. God will not let his enemies off the hook. And it also means sustenance and care for the king as he faces them. And that's what David has seen throughout his life. It's one reason why he loves the Lord as he does, one reason among many. David has faced seemingly insurmountable odds, enemies that are loud, enemies that are aggressive, enemies that we would have placed our bets on to win, enemies that are experienced at conquering other nations. And yet consistently we see God providing for his king, giving his king the victory that he has promised, all of which foreshadows Jesus. That is exactly what we see in his life too, in his ministry, in his reign as king, insurmountable odds, impressive looking, impressive sounding enemies, the scorn of man, the large stone placed in front of his tomb, all of which are met decisively by God's salvation as he rescues his king. That's the first thing for us to listen to as we hear Psalm 18 this morning, the rescue of God's king. The second thing for us to hear as we listen to Psalm 18 more briefly is the righteousness of God's king. So verses 20 to 30, right at the heart of the psalm, the righteousness of God's king. In many ways, an even bigger victory for David, an even bigger reason for David to sing. Verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And then verse 21, I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not departed from my God. See, we saw last week as we looked at Psalm 17 that when King David sings these words, he doesn't look to his own life and doesn't look to his own righteousness. Instead, his language here is covenant language. David is saying that he has held fast to the covenant promises that God has made with his king. He has held fast to these covenant promises in God's strength. And so he can say, verse 23, I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. That blame, that guilt, that impurity that David should have borne was instead borne and paid for by another king. And so he can call himself blameless in the eyes of the Lord. David's words here foreshadow a greater king, a better king, one who would truly be blameless, guiltless, clean on his own merit. 
And verse 25 contains a, a covenant word. Merciful doesn't quite capture its full range. Verse 25 reads, With the faithfully godly and kind, you will show yourself to be faithfully godly and kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. See, David knows that in order to be righteous, God has to be the one that makes it happen. God has to be the one that makes him righteous. David knows that he cannot ever know the rescue. He cannot ever know the righteousness of the Lord without the Lord's intervention in his life, without the Lord's help. And through God, the impossible is made possible. King David has ample evidence to persuade us that we don't need to look for salvation and we shouldn't look for salvation. We shouldn't look for rescue. We shouldn't look for righteousness anywhere else other than in the God who loves us and offers us these things. Verse 28, King David sings, It is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. By you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. See, David knows that he is utterly dependent on the Lord to rescue him as king and to make him righteous as king. And that's exactly what the Lord has done. That's the only way that King David can sing confidently of his blamelessness, to trust in his descendant, to trust in the greater king that was to come, Jesus who would die in his place on the cross for his sins and ours. And that righteousness that God graciously, generously gives his king is what David describes as the perfect way of the Lord in verse 30. Words that will prove true for David and for all who take refuge in him. It's what the Lord needs to do. It's what the Lord delights to do in all of his people if he is to be with us. It's what happens to us as we are united to our King, Jesus. Our God thunders the gospel into our world, into our hearts, bends the laws of the world to powerfully rescue King Jesus from death in order to leave his enemies as defeated enemies and then unites us to our King Jesus so that we can know these things for ourselves. See, God doesn't just pull us away from our enemies, but he pulls us close to him as our covenant-keeping God. And so as King Jesus is rescued and righteous, so are we in him and by him. God doesn't need to be persuaded to act in this way. He doesn't rescue his people and make them righteous begrudgingly. He is utterly true to his own promises, utterly true to his own character, utterly true to his own covenant that he makes with his people, utterly true to his own words. And so with those who he has chosen to be faithful to him, he cannot help but be faithful towards them. With those who he has made to be righteous in his sight, he cannot help but be righteous to them. He is irreversibly loyal and loving to his rescued and righteous people in Jesus. And that is you and that is me this morning if we have bowed the knee to him. If we trust in him like David did for our own rescue and righteousness rather than relying upon our own works, rather than trusting in our own goodness. 
he sings this psalm to his God, David. Jesus sings this psalm to his Father. And in Jesus, David and I and all of us can sing along with him. Which leads us on to consider our response. The third thing that we'll look at this morning as we draw to a close. We've seen the rescue of God's King, both David and Jesus. We've seen the righteousness of God's King, both David and Jesus, thanks to Jesus' death on the cross. And so let's consider the response of God's King, which we see at the start and at the end of the psalm. Listen to the intimacy in David's description of the Lord and what he has done. So verse 1 of Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, worthy to be praised. And then again, verse 46, blessed be my rock, the God of my salvation, who gave me vengeance, subdued peoples under me, rescued me from my enemies, exalted me, delivered me. The history-defining rescue from our rock and our salvation is for an entire people group, and it is personal for the individual as well. These verses express the way that King David wants our hearts to respond to everything that the Lord has done in his people and in our own lives and hearts. And he would have us do three things as we wrap up. The first is to love the Lord and to know his love as his rescued righteous people. To love the Lord and to know the love of the Lord as his rescued righteous people in Jesus. He earnestly desires the gratitude, the thankfulness, the affection of his children and gives us so much reason to trust in him. He gives us so much to show us his salvation. And it reveals so much about our God that he doesn't ask for us to repay him. He doesn't ask us to pay him back for everything that he has done for us, but to simply express a love for him, for his words for his deeds. And so alongside David, we sing, I love you, O Lord. That's the first way that David would want us to respond to what God has done. The second is to sing to one another of who he is. So this is a psalm that David writes for God's people to sing to one another, to declare the truth of who he is into the lives of other believers. And when someone next to me at church on a Sunday sings, he is my strength, he is my rock, he is my fortress, he is my deliverer. It reminds me of what is true. It reminds me of the wonderful covenant promises that God has made with his people. It reminds me of the blamelessness of my own heart in Jesus. And it confronts and fights the tendency in my heart to think that his enemies might have actually won or that I might not actually be as secure in him as I am. And then when I sing along, when I sing in response, he is my rock, he is the God of my salvation, it shapes my heart to confess the reality of my life, that he is the stability, he is the sustenance, he is the salvation that I so desperately need, that we so desperately crave, and I would be foolish to look for any of these things anywhere else. So love the Lord, sing of his salvation to one another, and then thirdly and finally, Sing to the nations of who he is.
So verse 49, let me just read that out. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. That verse there, that's one of a few verses that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 15, where Paul speaks of the gospel going out to both Jew and Gentile, where the nations are to hear of God's rescue and righteousness and respond with love and assurance and obedience to our God. See, God wants to install his king of the nations, King Jesus, not to rule tyrannically as a dictator, but instead to unite and join the whole earth together in singing the praises of our God. The gospel, the gift of God's rescue, the gift of God's righteousness, that was always meant to be sounded out, not just within a church family, but across the nations. And so David, Paul, Jesus, would say that a key part of our response is to sing this song for those that don't yet know him. To sing this song for those that don't yet know the rescue and the righteousness of the Lord. To sing this song for those that we know that don't yet know Jesus. So that they also might be united to God's King. So that they also might be rescued. So that they also might be made righteous. So that they also might know all of the blessings that he gives us himself. So much more that could be said. Let me pause there before I pray, and then we'll sing to close our service together. Father, we thank you for the words that you have shared with us this morning through King David. Thank you for rescuing him. Thank you for rescuing King Jesus from his enemies, your enemies, from our enemies. Thank you, Father, that in so doing, you leave our enemies disarmed, defeated, and you make us righteous. And so we pray this morning, Father, that you would help us to respond by expressing our love for you in the way that we live our lives and our affections for you. Help us to sing of all these wonderful truths to one another and help us to sing to those who don't yet know you that they too may come to know you as God. All these things we ask in the strong, kind name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we sing this morning to close our gathering.